0: Kevin Richard. Well, the November 8th elections are fast approaching, so we continue our look this week at the state superintendent's race. This week's guest is Republican nominee Debbie Critchfield. I interviewed Critchfield before the May Republican primary, but this time around I wanted to catch up on some items that have unfolded since the primary. The September 1st special session that earmarked more than $400 million for education spending the increased focus on school facilities needs around the state, and the education platform that was approved in July at the State Republican Party Convention. Here's my interview with Debbie Critchfield. Well, thank you for joining me again for the podcast. I wanted to pick up on the campaign since May and since the primary when we spoke last. So you've been on the trail this fall, through the summer, heading into the fall. Is there something you're hearing over and over about the state of education in Idaho and something maybe that's changing your, your view of this campaign or the view of the office.
1: I don't know that there's been any significant changes from the primary campaign trail to the primary or to the general, excuse me. Uh, the, the same messages. I, I believe that there's an energy about making changes, and, and some of them uh, that, that folks talk about, they don't know how to exactly um, say it. You know, they just they, they feel like, well, we want we want better things for kids or we want to help our teachers. And uh, outside of education stakeholders and, and people who follow this closely, there's that feel that we, we want to make make something um, worthwhile mm-hmm. and we want to you know have this value add to education. They may not be able to exactly identify. And as a candidate, that's where I can come in and say, well, here's how I would identify this problem or here's a suggestion that I have or an idea that I have for the, for what you're talking about.
0: So what do you drill down to as the tangibles that you could affect if elected that would get at some of this maybe unspecified, we want to see something different, we want to see something better.
1: Right, um, I I don't spend a ton of time talking about literacy and it's not because I don't think that that's important, I, I mm-hmm. do. Um, To me it's that given like well of course we're going to to make the available tools and resources so that we can have more kids reading i mean that to me that that's kind of a given and and so where i go with a lot of what i'm hearing um, depends on who i'm talking to and so if i'm talking to teachers then i i have heard and i will say here are things that um, i'm making a commitment to help you with there are financial ways that we can support teachers, there are non-financial ways. And Non-financial ways. How do we help support mentoring? How do we help prepare you for the modern classroom? How do we help give you um, what you need so that uh, you feel as though you can deal with the learning environment of today's child, which is different? I've you know heard that. If I'm talking to parents, you know they they want to know how do I engage with my school board more? How do I feel as though I've been heard? Uh, how how do I interact in these processes? We hear that local boards make all of these decisions. How do I go about involving myself in ways um, that, that matter to me? Uh, if I'm talking to students, um, they, they feel overwhelmed with a number of things. The, the emotional issues are big for students with their peers. You know, how, how are we gonna tackle that? And, and one that's a, an overlying theme or strand as we weave all of this together, and it's not just business leaders, but it's also parents and teachers and students, et cetera. How do we prepare our our students as they're preparing or getting ready to exit our system? What skills do they have work ready? What's transferable? How do we help you be um, uh, confident in in taking advantage of the opportunities of a growing state?
0: A bunch of events have unfolded in the education space since uh, the spring. Starting, of course, with the special session yes. on September 1st and the $330 million that's been put into education. How do you want to see that spent? I mean, how do you prioritize where that money should go?
1: So the the simple answer to how do I want to see that spent wisely? <laughs> mm-hmm. And I know that maybe sounds uh, pretty generic and, and not packed with any anything. I really do care about that. And, and this is why. Um, over time, we've seen a lot of money go into education, and yet we collectively feel like, well, what did we get from that? What did we buy? And so one of the concerns I have is is that we, we do this deliberately, um, and I've been, um, asking and, and hoping that I get invitations to be at the table when the legislature goes through this. I'm, I'm looking at that workforce development piece as far as vocational training, career technical education, how we also look at solving problems that every district has, whether uh, you're in Sagal or Montpelier or Chalice or wherever you are, um, classified facilities. Yeah. Um, th- there are a number of things. And, and so my approach would rather than do piecemeal is to have a comprehensive plan that affords a local district, the, the control that they need for the needs that they have. So that generally speaking, that's my approach. Um, but um, I've got to be invited to be a part of that conversation. Mm-hmm. And and I'm hoping that I can be.
0: And the $80 million for mm-hmm. Indian and in careers, which dovetails to a lot of what you're talking Absolutely. about. Absolutely, right? yeah. But I don't think anybody really has a clear picture, a defined picture yet of where that money goes, how that money is spent, how it's prioritized. What would be your preferences there?
1: I'm hoping that um, as decisions are made at our our two and four-year institutions regarding that money, that as we're looking forward on the horizon for what we can do for students, uh, that we're also looking backwards so that we build that bridge there. There's a lot of great examples of, um, many of our institutions have bridge programs from high school uh, to to higher ed. Now, some of those bridges need to go from high school to industry, from high school to some type of certification. Mm -hmm. And other ways. And and so I'm hoping that we can find those connecting pieces, again, that we're looking comprehensively at what is it that we're trying to accomplish instead of, well, we're going to only put money here and only put money here. Well, we're all trying to solve some of these same problems. Let's talk about it collaboratively so that we're we're really going to target those resources uh, and get the best we can out of it.
0: We've heard so much this summer about the teacher shortage and the challenges districts are facing with, with teacher recruiting and retention. How do you approach that? I mean, the problem isn't gonna go away. It's gonna be a problem for no, right. the next superintendent. Inherits. So it's, what's the root cause here and what's the, the solution?
1: Uh, the, always we're looking at compensation and we've seen that improve and I think we continue to build out the career ladder and, and not have it top out after you've been in there for you know at eight years, That thank you. Um, we need to continue to look at that. Um, I think the, the insurance side of it is a piece towards the overall benefits package that is helpful. That's important, I wanna put that to the side um, and, and talk about non-financial ways uh, that I think are, are critical for teachers. I've spent a lot of time thinking about parallels between um, the, the teaching profession, law enforcement, and nursing. There's a lot of similarities. Mm-hmm. Um, right now, maybe not so much the respect of nursing, but there for law enforcement and for teaching, there's a feel that it's not a respected profession. It's hard to recruit, to keep. Um, the pay. Um, there, there's a lot of things. There's a lot of expectation, the stress levels, the and, stress levels and the expectation of changes of what we're expecting teachers to do. And frankly, I, I think that we've, we, we, the royal we, we need to get boundaries established around our schools on what they do and what they don't do. Now, That doesn't take away the fact that you have um, kids that that are coming into a classroom, into a school that need extra help in a variety of ways that are outside of a learning situation. Um, And yet it still presents itself as an issue for schools. We can direct parents to outside sources and and take this pressure off of teachers that they're the counselor, the nurse. the, you know, the, the advisor, all of these things. And so I know that teachers, I, I've talked to them, well, not just as a campaigner, but for a long time, that this is the pressure that they feel. I got in this because I love the art of teaching. Right. And but the I'm, all yes, I'm, all and, and we can't do it and we shouldn't be doing it. And so, and I understand for, for many of our parents, they don't know where else to go, but they'll go to a school or many times children that are hard at home or are the kids that are hard at school because parents aren't sure of, of what to do. Let's direct parents to the resources outside of the school system, set the appropriate boundaries, and establish that appropriate role for teachers. Um, and that includes how, what you do when you're dealing with severe behaviors. Um, mentoring, I think, is another one. How we mentor our, our, the, those first three years are so critical to our new teachers. And then how are we preparing them while they're in our colleges of education? It it, is that appropriate. What's the context? And I have said for years and and I want to be more, um, I guess, vocal about this. I actually think that the student teaching year needs to be earlier than the last year. That shouldn't to me, that should not be the culmination of what you're doing. Let's get, let's get our student teachers in earlier to f- help them understand what you're going to get into. Then they could go back into the college setting and say, well, you know what? When I was in the classroom, this presented itself as a situation. How do I deal with this? Instead of the very last thing we do is send you into the classroom. Well, there's no opportunity to learn from an experience, to grow, to, to change and, and to develop.
0: And given that this is an issue that is going to be there for the next superintendent, Your opponent is a career educator. He's a lifelong educator. You you are not an educator. How do you make the case that you're the person who can address this issue?
1: Completely different role. Um, I know where educators are. Um, I don't have a teaching certificate, but I know where they are. And um, being in schools and visiting and so forth informs me. It's extremely valuable and very instructive to sit down and talk with teachers to be in classrooms. I can do that all the time and have. The difference is the role of the superintendent, one, you're the administrative head of a department of education. And, and two, you become an advocate to um, the legislature, you work on a board. It's a completely different role than someone that's in the classroom. I respect that uh, Mr. Gilbert has that experience, but we're not electing the state teacher. We're electing an official with a constitutional role Um, that needs to be filled, and that requires a different skill set.
0: Let's talk about facilities. Um, We saw during the summer kind of a mixed bag in terms of bond issue results in August. We've seen some districts talking about even bigger bond issues down the road, and you've got an interim committee now looking at facilities. You've got uh, education groups saying, with this surplus, maybe it's time to start putting more money, state money, into facilities. Where do you stand on all
1: of that? Uh, that I'm glad we're talking about it finally um, and getting, and, and I'm encouraged that we're going to get some activity and um, some progress. We're not going to fix the facilities problem in a year and not even in five years, but we've got to get the structure in place to say, this is, you know, we're going to make a dent and continue to, you know, it, it feels at times like we're, we're shoveling with a teaspoon. And that's okay, because we're going to you know, continue to do that. Uh, there's no question that we are in an in a environment where we've, we've got two tracks of education, communities that will support local levies and communities that cannot. Every community that I've been in, it's not an issue of, if, they, if they're not supportive of bonds and levies, it's not because they don't support education or they don't want good things for the kids. They can't afford it. Right. And, and so um, there's no question in my mind that there is a role for the state what and how that you know exactly looks like i, I think um we'll just dis- I, I hope to be at the table it's a complex issue it's been deferred maintenance for so long you know i we say deferred maintenance is deficit spending and, and that's where we are with the facilities and um, i'm excited go back to that Report from Office of Performance uh, Right. this right.
0: year that said one billion. We know how much it is. Yeah, costs.
1: but we think that it's one billion, and uh, you know, again, having traveled around the state, the facilities' impact on discretionary funds and a, a local budget sure. is is no small thing. Districts will save and save and save so that they could do you know a new program, and then a seventy-five year old. A boiler breaks, and they've got to get a part manufactured or something completely replaced, well, there went that $300,000 that maybe they were putting in place to develop a gifted and talented program. And, and so I don't think anyone would argue this point with me. Facilities impacts the academic outcomes mm-hmm. of our students because of the, the, the financial aspect. Sure.
0: Let me ask about your own party. Uh, the Republican convention this this July uh, approved an education platform that includes calling for a direct election of school board members, uh, education savings accounts, uh, some sort of policy or financial penalties uh, for schools uh, if they advance what is described as social justice or indoctrination. Are you comfortable with uh, your party's education platform?
1: I was at the convention. Um and I would note that those education platforms platform changes, proposed changes um, came from um, one of the the, the uh, candidates that mm-hmm. was defeated sure. in in the primary. So I, I think that that's something that needs to be addressed and, and thrown in the mix that when we look at significant um, changes or alterations, you know, is that coming from a place of, is this good policy or someone that has sour grapes because they didn't win? And so I know that there will be discussion and there was leading up to the January meeting um, with a number of those things. And you know, there there are items in there that we're already doing in the state and, and things that I, you know, that I feel strongly about. Um, I was elected with the, the message and the platform that I have and and so I, you know, I'll continue continue to talk about that.
0: And certainly the debate at the convention wasn't the first time we've heard the debate over education savings accounts. Uh, absolutely. Prices, certainly not the last. We'll hear no, in next time. absolutely. If you're elected, what would you bring to the dialogue on school choice, and what would you be comfortable putting your name behind?
1: One of the things that the message that I'm sharing, and I'm, I'm inviting people to help me share this message. Idaho is school choice, is a school choice state. For whatever reasons, and I, I believe that a lot of it is coming from outside national groups, First, for whatever reason, again, vouchers have become the litmus test for school choice. If you write down all the things that Idaho currently allows, provides, supports, etc. cetera, for school choice, we are comparable with any state out there And we're recently ranked third in the nation by the Heritage Foundation for educational freedom. For some reason, it has centered on this voucher piece that, well, if you don't have vouchers, you don't have school choice. And and I'm pushing back on that saying, no, we absolutely have school choice. And and here's how we have it. I'm not interested in uh, voucherizing our system. Um, And the deal breakers for me on that are one, if we're gonna just slice up, well, I don't even wanna start with one, that's two. Let me start with one. As an elected superintendent, there's a constitutional mandate to support public education, mm-hmm. and and that and that's where you start. And frankly, I want public schools to be a school of choice. We want people to want to be there because, and we want to help make that an environment that people want to go to. Uh, two, if we're going to continue to slice up the same pie, then then we do take away from public schools. Um, and and three, it can't come at you know a lot of these decisions can't come at the um, Um, uh, the expense of rural schools, uh, where they don't have either they have limited choices or no choices. So again, a public school is the school that they choose to go to. And so in this conversation, so that that's my message to start is Idaho is school choice. Let me explain to you the ways that we do that money does follow the student in the public arena. If your child's at wherever, you know, then the money goes with them. Homeschool parents, I've talked to, to folks there, they don't want the money because that's why they left the system. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, the state, through advanced opportunities, allows advanced opportunities to go to private school students can use that money like any other public school student. Empowering parents, that is money that goes directly to a family to supplement any part of um, the educational experience. And so, um, there, are like I say, there are a number of things that we are already doing. Um, For me, where do I insert myself into this? I believe that there are opportunities to open up existing programs. Let's use Empowering Parents as an example. You could add another line that says, you could use this for private tuition. That money is outside of the public schools budget. It is not included in that. It was never going to public schools. So this is how I approach it. What do we have already in place that is a known program that we're already doing that in no way is money taken away from a public school. And I've identified advanced opportunities and empowering parents as two places where that happens.
0: But in empowering parents, that was a really controversial clause in the language in 2021. It's basically a large measure of why empowering parents didn't pass in 2021.
1: Well, um, I think with the sideboards that we have on that, it, it, there's a, an allotted amount of money um, it's an application process. Uh, what I hear from people all over the state, when we start talking about giving all of the money to a parent or or having public money go to private students, I repeatedly hear, well, what's the accountability with that? How do, how do we know that, you know, how will taxpayers know similar to a public situation that, you know, learning has taken place? And, and so I, I think... With empowering parents again, using programs that are already in place that 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 we know are working, do you add an additional line? I mean that that's where I'm that's what I'm looking at, and I'm looking at um, advanced opportunities. That is money that students seven through twelve, any student seven through twelve has access to that money. Mm-hmm. It never goes to the school. It goes to where a parent. And student decide that that will help them, you know, with their dual credits. So do you take empowering parents and you take advanced opportunities and you marry them and they have a baby and, um, you know, and and you allow um, in, in that type of controlled situation, greater freedom for a parent. But all of this is under the umbrella of the fact that Idaho has promoted and continues to champion school choice.
0: When I talked to Terry Gilbert for the podcast, I asked him about the challenges of serving as a state superintendent as a Democrat in an overwhelmingly Republican statehouse. But it's an interesting question for you as well, because if you're elected, you're at a state house with Republicans, fellow Republicans, who are all over the map on a lot of education yeah, issues. Yeah, no question. How do you navigate that? And how do you try to find a, a sweet spot here amongst the varying uh, perspectives on education within your party?
1: I actually believe that, um, well, first I'm looking forward to that, and I believe that I I bring, um, that's a a skill that I bring to the table, that I'm able to work with people, and that you find those places where um, you can agree, and then what can we do within, you know, it's sort of like that Venn diagram that you see. You know, we we care about kids, we care about educational outcomes, we care that we're... um, careful with our taxpayer dollars. Okay, so what are those things that we care about? Where do we find those places in the middle? And then how can we work together uh, to further those? And and all of us will not get all of the things that we want, but if we can prioritize the things that matter the most that are shared. And so um, I'm a great listener even though I've done all the talking, (laughs) Uh, but, you know, yeah, to go and to go and listen to people. And, um, you know, come November 9, my my travel is going to shift from going around the state soliciting votes and talking about my message to voters uh, to going and visiting with legislators all over the state to sit down and and hear what they want to do. How what what do you want to do? Here's what I'd want to do. How do we work together so that we could accomplish some of those things? So I I look forward to that. I like the relationship building and um, seeing the the positive things that can come from it.
0: And do we get get to a point, whether you're elected or not, or do we get to a point in 2023 and beyond where education is less politicized we see right
1: now. Oh, boy. Um, I, I hope that that, frankly, that that's one of my goals that we can get, you know, get back to business. Um, I believe that there will always be issues that arise that become politicized. And we've seen a number of them through curriculum mm-hmm. and, you know, a number of, of things. And so as more attention is on education, and I'm happy about that, it becomes to me a responsibility as a state official, uh, to make sure that we're very transparent and that information is always available, that the communication um, is two-way, and, and hopefully as these things arise or things come up, at the, again, to help support what's happening at the local level, the State Department of Education can say, hey, we're hearing this, let's let's help you message that, or we can message it to say, you've heard this, but, but this is what we know.
0: It really goes back to the role of what what does the state superintendent do as head of the state of Right, right.
1: I mean, be, a large management. Job. It, it, it is. Um, you you besides being a champion for education and an advocate, I, I think you also have to have you have everyone's back. At the, you know, at the local level, that here here are things that we're hearing. Um, this is how you could talk about it. And here's what we know, we're gonna give everything that we know at the state level to you, so that if a parent approaches you and says, well, I understand that this is a a curriculum, you know, in the state or in the district, how do you talk about that? And instead of shying away from things, and well, that's not true, and we're gonna shut a door, well, let's open up the doors, let's have that transparency. Okay, let's talk about it, how are we gonna do it? So I don't think you ever get away, to get back to your original question, I don't know that you ever get completely away, because we live in a society, we have social media, we have, we're more connected than we ever have been before. And so I think it just elevates and um, accentuates the need for transparency and communication.
0: There was a lot I wanted to catch up on since the primary and I appreciate your your time walking through it with
1: me. Well, thank you so much. We're days away and and it's nice to say that from the, the general and I'm ready to switch my energies and um, work into solving problems.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Again, that was Debbie Critchfield, the Republican candidate for state superintendent of public instruction. I also interviewed the Democratic candidate for state superintendent, Terry Gilbert. He was the guest on my podcast last week. So if you missed that interview, go back and check it out. We have a lot more on the state superintendent's race, all at idahoednews.org. Sadie Dittenberg has profiles of both of the candidates. And we also had the candidates fill out an online questionnaire. So you can see their responses on several education topics. You can see their answers in their own words, unedited. And also the Sunshine Reports came out in the state superintendent's race. And there are a couple of surprises about where the money, where the fundraising uh, came from in September. I explained that on my blog. Plenty more political news broke this week. The Idaho Education Association issued a list of bipartisan endorsements in state races and legislative races. I have a rundown of that. Speaking of endorsements, more than 50 prominent Republicans came out on Tuesday endorsing Democratic Attorney General's candidate, Tom Arcush. I have a story about that. And there is an education angle to it that you'll want to check out. And an election that is nonpartisan and definitely education related, the race for four seats on the College of Western Idaho's board of trustees. Now, normally, community college trustee races are pretty low-key affairs, pretty ho-hum races. This time around, this race is taking on some partisan overtones, and I think it's getting more attention in the Treasure Valley, especially in light of all the turmoil that we've seen at North Idaho College in the wake of trustee elections in the panhandle. So I have a piece taking a look at where these candidates stand, what they hope to do, and the political overtones of this race. That's a story I wrote on Thursday. You can find that one at idahoednews.org as well. And you'll want to follow us on a daily basis between now and election day because we'll be breaking a lot of news on education politics, but also on education policy. So follow us on the homepage at idahoednews.org. Follow us on Twitter at idahoednews. We tweet out links to our latest stories and bulletins on any breaking news. Follow us on Facebook and comment on our stories there. And check back next Friday for another edition of the podcast. I'm Kevin Richard, have a good week.